Right now, Keith Roy is with us. Uh, he's with the Monarchist League of Western Canada. Good morning, Keith. Uh, thanks so much. You must be a very busy man right now. Good morning, Bruce. Um, yesterday was one of the busiest days we've ever had as an organization. Uh, and combine it with, obviously, the, the sadness and the sorrow for the passing of Her Majesty. And at the same time, as you're alluding to, the, the celebration of uh, a new king. So there's, there's a lot of conflicting emotions going on, and, and all of those culminate in one individual, and that is King Charles. You go back through history and you go back through literature, and with the death of a monarch, we often uh, say, long live thee, and we celebrate the next king or the next monarch coming in. It is that very strange mix, isn't it? Um, 70 years in reign, uh, an entire lifetime for many or most of us, and then, uh, and, and that's sad. It truly is. But it is a celebration. We do get a new king. So we are going to hear from uh, King Charles III coming up, and uh, I'm still getting used to saying that. What, what does he have to say? Um, first yeah. of all, when I ask that, I mean that in terms of two things. What is the protocol here? What is required of him to say and then what is it that he wants to say to reach out to the audience in 2022? Well, we recall um, her, her late majesty's speech when she acceded to the throne uh, on the death of her father um, when she was in Cape Town and she found out and she did the radio address, uh, which was also televised in parts. My life, whether it be long or short, will be devoted to your service. And that clip uh, words she lived to, it was played for 70 more years. So the, the poignancy of the moment is not lost on Charles. This is an important moment. But it's a struggle because this is a man who lost his mother yesterday. And so there will be, uh, there will be some sadness, there will be some grief, there will be some joy for a life well lived. Uh, but most of all, I think there will be a message of continuity and stability. Uh, this isn't some sort of radical changing of the guard. It's not like we're getting a new government uh, switching from conservatives to liberals or Democrats to Republicans. Uh, this is this is the joy of the monarchy for Canadians. Is it's it's stable and constant and true. Uh, and the Queen did the same thing for 70 years, just slowly plodding along, doing her duty. And Charles will continue to carry that along. So the message will acknowledge the importance of his mother. It will recognize the solemnity of the moment, uh, and it will uh, ensure and usher us uh, that uh, things will continue as normal. Of course, uh, when his mother passed, he probably had uh, an inclination that her health was was very poor. We all knew that. But uh, he had a little bit of advance notice of just how grave her condition had been in those hours. So there is that preparation that uh, has been taking place. But still, uh, one of the things that he has to do, I would imagine, is come through with a very strong sort of presence. And we know that Charles is uh, one that can be brooding at times. Is that fair to say? Or a little bit somber? He comes across as very serious, doesn't he? Well, first of all, we need to remember that you know, King Charles III is not Queen Elizabeth II, and we shouldn't expect him to be that. He will be his own man, and he will have his own form and style. 
Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet um, then Prince Charles, and I was remarkably impressed at his ability to communicate um, one-on-one. Very charming, very engaging, much different than kind of the media lens most of us would have viewed him through. And if we think back to some of the speeches he made uh, at the Jubilee celebrations, very touching, heartfelt, you know, um, about his his mummy. Um, I think Charles is a far better communicator than he has been given credit for. And now that the spotlight is exclusively on him, I think people will be pleasantly surprised at his ability to communicate and lead us forward in this role. Keith Roy is with the Monarchist League of Western Canada. I want to pick up on that a little bit because he does have a image in the media. And there has been, I would say, an uptick in interest in the monarchy in the last couple of years. Uh, even Netflix is, uh, has got the crown um, where you have this uh, series where he is portrayed as a character. Um is that characterization of him fair in the media? Do you think, uh, I know you mentioned that, uh, and I've heard this before, people that meet him find him very personable, but the stories that we hear are not quite that way. Yeah, so Charles Charles is an interesting problem in that he was the first heir to the throne who grew up in the spotlight, just as the queen was the first queen who uh, reigned during the television era. And so there was no playbook for Charles, whereas the lessons learned from raising Charles in the spotlight were brought forward to William. And he was raised a little bit differently in the spotlight and his uh, his persona was um, presented a little bit differently. If, if we think to Charles in the 80s and, you know, he was a bit nerdish and he was an eco farmer and he was talking to plants and he was all green friendly um, if Charles were 20 today, he would be the coolest guy in town. And I think he'll be well served with the things he knows. And, and the world's come around to Charles in a lot of ways and a lot of his beliefs and his thinking. Um, and once he starts communicating that, um, I'm, I'm hopeful, optimistic. And, and I do believe that, that people will find that he is, um, he is very effective at his job. No one, nobody has trained as long as him for this job. And he had a front row seat to one of the best. Well, Keith, uh, when he was in his 20s, he was far from the coolest guy around, though. Uh, He had trouble even uh, mixing in or socializing. Uh, Is that fair back then? Oh, certainly. I mean, Charles, I I like to think of Charles as a man ahead of his time. Um, he He was nerdy when it wasn't cool. And now that it's cool to be a nerd... Uh, he's he's moved on a little bit in, in age. Um, he's just a little out of place on his time. But again, he's he's had to grow up in the spotlight as the heir to the throne in an era that's just completely unprecedented. And he did his best. He's, he's settled into who he is as a person. His relationship with Camilla is wonderful. She is a delightful, delightful human that provides him uh, an an enormous amount of support to to do the role. And as we saw with the Queen, she had Prince Philip with her for 68 years of her reign. And the last two, you could see it, that she just struggled without him by her side. And so we've got a new king, a queen consort. Uh, you know, the, together they will move forward in this role. And, and I think Charles's reputation that you're alluding to will be even further rehabilitated 
from from what it was. Um, people, Charles has really come around to the public in the last number of years. Um, obviously, the the Diana era was a struggle for his reputation, but people have come to enjoy him. Uh, people have come to accept Camilla. Certainly, the British public has. And uh, as we go forward, uh, that couple, the the king and the queen consort will reign and, and provide leadership to Canada, the UK, and all the other realms. Do you think that image of him actually suffered because uh, the media loves, especially when it comes to stories and certainly series, they love contrasts. And uh, with Diana, uh, it definitely was a contrast of personality. We know that. And uh, that was portrayed. She was very fun-loving and outgoing and uh, caring, much like Charles, but uh, certainly not Charles. Uh, the Queen Consort, uh, a totally different character, and I would argue, and see if I'm right, uh, Keith, uh, more in line with uh, the Charles personality. Uh, the Queen Consort actually is, from a, a support of the monarch standpoint, I would suggest is going to operate very similar to the way uh, the Duke of Edinburgh did, which is um, supportive, helpful, um, two steps behind, out of the spotlight, uh, but... Um, you know, deeply involved in in supporting uh, the monarch in his role. Whereas with Diana, the the challenge at the time was her and Charles were were equal partners, and and nobody really understood how that would work. And and then there, you know, if, if you've watched The Crown, you've seen the the story. You know, Diana trumped Charles, and then Charles trumped Diana, and it it was obviously a, a toxic relationship in a lot of ways. So uh, with with this relationship, the the crown is the most important thing. And Charles is just the personification of the crown, just as the queen was for 70 years. Right. The monarchy lives and it's a continuous thing. Yeah. So the institution will go on. Charles is now the personification of it. And again, he'll be different than his mother was. But the continuity is there. And he understands that better than anyone because he's been sitting on the front row for 70 years waiting. We were chatting with Keith Roy, who's still with us. Uh, He's with the Monarchist League of Western Canada. Keith, uh, this is going to be a hard act to follow for Charles in the next days ahead. Of course, it starts uh, in about uh, half an hour's time, a little over that, with his first address as King Charles III. But what does he have to do? Once he gets through the requirements of the job, what does he have to do to reach out to a public uh, in the next bit? Well, I don't I don't think that this is a hard act to follow uh, because he's not going to he's just going to continue. And that's worth noting. This isn't a full you know scene overdone. He is just continuing on carrying on with the, the duties of the crown Um and, and I, I, I really want to encourage people to not compare one to the other. And it's, it's obviously going to happen, but that's not what this is about. He should be judged in his own right for what he's about to do. So there, there's, a, there's a speech that you'll be playing live shortly, and I'm looking forward to listening. Uh, he will, um, I believe that was pre-recorded earlier today. He, he met with the prime minister earlier today in the UK, uh, keeping in mind they're eight hours ahead of us. He went um, at, just out in front of the palace. He stepped out of his uh, motorcade and met some of the well-wishers. And so he's already doing the things. He's engaging with the public in a very personal way. 
Um, there's there's been an enormous outpouring of support for him in the UK, and and I've seen some of that here in Canada. And then going forward, uh, there's still conflicting reports on this, but he will work his way through uh, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, giving giving various addresses and, and and meeting various leaders. And then I would anticipate, much like his mother, he'll embark on a bit of a world tour over the course of the next year which will include, um, undoubtedly include, a tour of Canada. Uh, keeping in mind, uh, he doesn't visit Canada. He tours Canada because Charles, as our king, is as Canadian as you or I. That's right. It's never so, a visit. It's a tour. Yeah, he will have a, he will have a Canadian homecoming, um, which may include multiple cities, may just include Ottawa. Uh, Charles has always been quite fond of Canada, and I'd imagine we'd see him here. And then he'll tour some other realms in the world, all kind of within a 12-month period. I would anticipate a, a pretty global presence uh, to just go out and, and do some very personal, you know, he'll, he'll shine a light on some of his interests, which uh, include climate change, children's education. And then he will uh, do some visiting uh, with, with the public in various public events. I think, uh, I think people will see that he is a very approachable um, and and dedicated and hardworking. I mean, if you go and read anything about Charles, everyone will tell you he's he's like he's always working. He's not a he's not. No a, one's ever questioned that part. No. Yeah. No. Right. So just like his mother, uh, who worked until two days, be- you know, the day before or two days right. before she died, appointing a new prime minister. So the the institution is in is in good hands. We as a country are lucky to have this. Uh, and we get to be we get to be part of this. Well, Keith Roy, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, we're about half an hour away from hearing from King Charles III, um, but uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. God uh, save the king. And it was about uh, just over twenty four hours ago that the world learned of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And in that time, there have been. Remarks from leaders all around the world remembering the 70-plus year reign of Queen Elizabeth. And we have also learned that King Charles III will continue on with uh, going by the name Charles, choosing to go King Charles III. And uh, he will be making his address, his first one, in the next half hour or so. History continues to be made. We will be bringing that address to you when it is made right here on the Mike Smith Show coming up. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because there are things that do continue, even though we have such monumental news. Uh, And the passing of a monarch, there really is uh, nothing that can compare to that when it comes to uh, something that really dominates the news cycle. But that being said... We do have an election cycle underway right now. We do have the civic elections coming up on October the 15th and a provincial by-election tomorrow. And those go ahead despite the fact that uh, we do have a monarch, uh, a change in monarchy from Queen Elizabeth II to King Charles III. I had a chance to talk with Hamish Telford, Associated Professor, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley about this and about uh, when it comes to campaigns in general. Uh, what effect, if any, do we have when there is the death, 
say, of Queen Elizabeth II? To be honest, I'm really not sure of the answer to that question, Bruce, because it hasn't happened for 70 years. Uh, I understand in Canada's past, when a monarch died, uh, Parliament and provincial legislatures were dissolved and we'd had to have a new election. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so it's, it's very tricky for, for candidates uh, who obviously want to get the vote out for tomorrow, but the monarch died yesterday. Do they want to be telephoning people and knocking on doors and trying to get the vote out as they normally would do? And people they're contacting could well be grieving. Yeah, I would almost imagine that that is up to the individual candidate to uh, make a read on that, uh, depending upon uh, the advice they get. I think so. Um, my, my guess is that the campaigns will continue to campaign and try to encourage uh, voters to get out. But if they encounter any resistance uh, from voters who are upset about the, the death of the monarch, they will back off quickly. When we talk about the provincial by-election, how important is campaigning today, the day before? Uh, does that matter or can you kind of just uh, back off a little bit? No, studies have shown that you really do have to campaign to the last minute, uh, right to the end of, of polls closing. Um, candidates and now campaigns now have so much data. They know who their supporters are, uh, where they live, and and uh, they will be encouraging as many of those people uh, to get to the polls. And uh, they, they normally do that right up to, to the last minute because uh, every vote counts, of course, and in a by-election, when we typically have low turnout, it really becomes a crapshoot. And so you need to get as many of your people out as possible. By-elections almost go invisible at times. And I'm uh, suggesting, not suggesting that this one will be invisible in Surrey South, but it comes uh, during civic elections, which uh, take a lot more profile, especially right now in Surrey and in Vancouver. But when you take a look at uh, this by-election in Surrey South, are the candidates uh, focusing more on local issues or is it about the uh, provincial government on a whole? Is it almost a report card on how the Horgan government has done? Well, to your first point, I think that this by-election was almost called to be invisible. It was called in the height of summer when people were on holiday. It was scheduled at the end of the first week of school when people were still trying to get things sorted out. Uh, it was also scheduled on the day the Conservative Party of Canada is choosing a new leader. And now, of course, of course, they didn't anticipate the death of the monarch, but we've got that now. Um, and I think that may have been part of the strategy of the NDP was to drive turnout down so as to give their candidate a better chance. As to what they're campaigning on, um, I, I think it's a mix of, of local uh, as well as provincial. I think the, the, the Liberals have been trying to call into question the, the NDP record. Uh, on and, and lack of action, they would say, on things like inflation, uh, the crisis in the healthcare system. Of course, these, these, these things affect the whole province as well as Surrey. Crime is going to be an important part of that campaign. Kevin Falcon is being no stranger when it comes to trying to make crime an important issue in the run-up to whenever the next election is going to be for the province. Is this a theme that you think will be playing out to the hearts of people, or are they overplaying their hand? I don't think they're overplaying their hand. Um, we, we have seen a terrible rash of, of sort of shootings, broad daylight brazen shootings across the lower mainland and, and, and notably in Surrey. 
so I think it is a, a top concern for some voters to be sure. And uh, you know, we're all a little bit fearful, right? You don't know when and where these things are going to happen. And uh, obviously, um, we as a community, as a, as a locality, as a, as a city, uh, and a province and a country need to do something about this. So um, for some voters, this will be the top issue. When it comes to uh, the by-election, again, uh, polls are polls, but by-elections are uh, what people are actually thinking. Is there going to be any take-back from this by-election, do you think, for those running civic campaigns, especially in Surrey? Can they read something into the result and pivot if they had a strategy to begin with? It's difficult sometimes sort of translating one electoral result to another uh, arena, um, I think that uh, if the Liberals win this seat, traditionally being a Liberal area, traditionally being a Liberal seat, if the Liberals win it, uh, I think that, that that wouldn't change anybody's calculus. If the NDP pull this off uh, and take a seat that they haven't otherwise held, uh, that might give some campaigns at the local level, municipal level pause. Uh, they might try and, and analyze that and determine if any changes are needed in their campaign. We were talking with Hamish Telford from the University of the Fraser Valley about two elections underway or campaigns underway. Of course, the civic elections across the province and also the provincial by-election tomorrow. And it's interesting, when it comes to civic elections, many eyes have been on the city of Vancouver and those polls that keep on changing who's in the lead. So we had a chance to talk with Hamish Telford a little bit about uh, how much confidence he has in those civic polls. I think the polls are going to be all over the place on this one. Uh, The last poll I saw was sort of a three-way tie. The the most recent poll I saw uh, showed two candidates had moved out in front with Kennedy Stewart actually in the lead, whereas in the last poll I saw uh, he was in third spot. Uh, And it's difficult polling in, in municipal elections because they tend to use relatively small sample sizes with a relatively high margin of error. So I think the polls are going to be a bit all over the place. Um, and, uh, but can, campaigns, of course, will have better polling. And uh, I think we need to take our cues from what campaigns are doing. Watch what they're doing. Where are they going? What sorts of announcements are they making? Uh, because they're, they're making all of those calculations based on the data that they're uh, acquiring. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I keep on looking at these uh, Vancouver Civic polls and uh, and see that there are such differences in uh, who's, uh, who's out in front and how tight it is and flipping and flopping back and forth. And, of course, in the Civic races, uh, whoever is in front, uh, that campaign tends to take that poll as gospel and work it right into the campaign. Uh, is that a little bit dangerous uh, using some of the polls for your campaigns, do you think? Well, it depends which polls they're using. If they're using public polls, then yes, it's very dangerous. If they're, But I think most of the campaigns are relying on their private polling, which are generally uh, a higher quality, more accurate polling than, than the public polls that, that we see uh, in the media. The other thing to bear in mind, uh, certainly in the second last poll that I saw, up to a third of voters were undecided. And of course, that creates a lot of volatility as well. 
I rather suspect with an October 15th election, people aren't going to be making up their minds uh, until maybe Thanksgiving weekend when they get together with family and friends and, and say, oh, yeah, there's an election next week. <laughs> Who's running? Right. Uh, so uh, this is this is really sort of preseason campaigning that we're in uh, at the moment. Hamish, it's still this point in time, but at this point in time, uh, which are the issues in the city of Vancouver that you think that uh, candidates better concentrate on? Well, I think housing and transportation are are the two big ones. Uh, of course, we need more affordable housing. That requires uh, more density. When you need when you're building more density, of course, that creates congestion unless you have good plans to move people around. So I think that the you know, and the campaigns know that. I think that's really what they're campaigning on. But they've got the added wrinkle that they're campaigning at a time of high inflation, and. Uh, that the cities are rather limited on what they can do about that, but uh, um, that that's going to be an issue for sure. And as you mentioned before, that the crime issue uh, as well, you know, and the crime issue, broadly speaking, not just sort of the brazen shootings that we've seen, but the more street level crime that we've seen, the random violence, the, the tent cities, all of those things, I think, are front and center in this this campaign. It's always been my impression that cities, uh, well, some cities, Vancouver especially, can take uh, provincial and even uh, federal issues and try to make them into civic issues, especially at election time. Uh, is this foolhardy or does it tend to work or are you even seeing this? Uh, maybe it's just me. Well, I think we do get some confusion. Uh, we often get, uh, you know, in federal elections, uh, in provincial elections, uh, politicians campaigning on municipal issues and, and vice versa. The risk, of course, is that uh, if you start campaigning on things that belong properly in another, another jurisdiction, it makes, if you win, uh, you might have difficulty delivering on any promises that you made. Um, so if you're a politician campaigning on things that properly lie in provincial or federal jurisdiction, then you have to work the phones afterwards to get provincial and federal uh, support uh, for what you propose, and that support might not be forthcoming. And, and uh, Sure, and does it matter then if you are a mayor of Vancouver or a mayor of Surrey, if you have a very tight and good relationship with the current provincial government? Uh, you have to forge those relationships always. You have to have good relationships at different levels of government. So uh, in Vancouver, of course, Kennedy Stewart was a former New Democrat. Uh, I imagine he's he's got good connections with the NDP government in Ontario, sorry, in Victoria. Uh, but he also has um, uh, strong relations with the Liberal government in, in Ottawa, uh, which are, you know, it doesn't matter what your own partisan affiliation is. You've got to forge good working relationships uh, with with other levels of government. We've talked about Vancouver. We've talked about Surrey because they are among the largest in the uh, province. But this is a uh, civic election that's happening right across uh, the province. Any other races that uh, you think are interesting or things to really watch for those who are um, politically motivated, uh, politically interested? Uh, sure. Uh, well, one of the things that was interesting was uh, is the city of Victoria, where the mayor is not running again, uh, and a lot of councillors are not running again. There's been a real uh, high rate of turnover there, and I think that that speaks to a, a structural issue that the province is going to have to address. Um, it, it's only the mayor who gets paid a full-time job salary. 
uh, counselors in, in many cities are, are supposed to work part-time or getting paid for part-time work when it's effectively a full-time job. Um, it's also a four-year term, and that makes it a huge commitment for someone to run uh, when the salaries are not full-time. So I think this is something we want to, to sort of keep an eye on broadly across the province, is this, this churn that we might be experiencing at the municipal level and, and questioning whether or not the sort of the setup is conducive to getting candidates to run and to stay in the job. For years, we've seen things like the Union of BC Municipalities take common issues uh, to the government. Well, healthcare is one of those right now. And some of the problems that we're seeing across the province with ambulance delays and emergency rooms closing, do you think there's going to be an eye toward that when we talk about uh, provincial politics and the relations with the municipalities? Absolutely. And this is, I think, part of the, the health care crisis uh, that, re- that really falls onto the laps of the provincial government. And I think that, that people are expecting um, action from the provincial government. And all we're hearing from John Horgan is, is him demanding that the Prime Minister of Canada pay up more money to the provinces uh, and, uh, and, and not taking action on their own accord here. Um, and with John Horgan, of course, the Premier set to step out of office uh, in December. Um, I'm not sure how much action we're going to see in the next two or three months. And then, of course, the new guy is going to have to take some time to get up to speed. Um, I think people are, if, are going to grow frustrated uh, if these sort of changes in, in provincial administration lead to delays in addressing this health care crisis. December comes along, and if we have, say, David Eby uh, as uh, the new premier, and they're not addressed, as you say, is this going to be a liability as far as running into the next election? Absolutely, and there has been some speculation uh, by reporters in Victoria who have their ear to the ground that... Uh, David Eby might call an early election. I, I would be very surprised that if he did, uh, for two reasons. I think that many economists are expecting 2023 to be the year of recession. This has been the year of inflation. Next year might be a year of recession. And he's and you don't want to have an election during a recession. Uh, and he certainly has to take action on the healthcare system before he calls an election. So I, I, I would be very surprised um, or put another way, these things might delay um, and any any thought of an early election. Well, interesting times ahead. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, Bruce. And if you had a chance to listen to King Charles III making his first public address as King Charles III, you may have noticed a balance between him being somber and reflecting on the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, and also outlining his commitment to continue on with many of her responsibilities and also her dedication. We'd love to hear some of your thoughts on King Charles III in his new role. Is he up for the task? Is it too soon to even talk about that or even challenge uh, him on it or question whether he is the right person for it? Well, your thoughts, 604 331 2899 on the buzz line. We'll try to get to as many as those buzz line calls later on in the show. 604-331-2899. Well, it is back to school. And back to school is also that time for many people uh, who are, well, trying to further their education. 
post-secondary students, uh, new post-secondary students and ones uh, returning to the classroom. And there is that challenge of how to look for market housing close to campus in a really tight market, more tight uh, in terms of rent than ever before, one would argue. Certainly the case in Vancouver, possibly also the case in markets like even Kelowna or Kamloops. When you take a look at uh, market housing, it really is difficult. So difficult indeed that Global Education City, which is the largest provider of off-campus student housing in Vancouver, said that the first thing that you're greeted with when you go to the website for Global Education City is a fully booked message. Well, GEC says it's uh, it's not their fault. Simply isn't. It's uh, a case of something happening in the rental market that perhaps they haven't seen to this extent ever before. Well, Tashia Kutineo is with uh is the secretary treasurer of the BC Federation of Students and uh, is with a group that's all too familiar with this problem. Thank you, uh, Tashia, for joining us. How bad is it? Am I exaggerating the problem or is it even worse than I say? I mean, first, thank you for having me talk about this. And, and second, this has been boiling for a while. You know, the pandemic has just put it at the forefront, made it more transparent. And like a lot of social issues, exacerbated the problem. Accessing education is increasingly unaffordable. We have tuition increases, cost of living, and lack of adequate public funding. So it is as dire as as you're making it out to be for students, especially those navigating it uh, returning to campus this fall. We know Vancouver is a really tough market when it comes to rentals, but uh, are we seeing a situation where it is so tough that maybe some students have to uh, make some tough choices when I say tough choices, like uh, go elsewhere for their education or not pursue it at all, what examples are you seeing? Yeah, so in, in Vancouver, we have a less than 1%. In Kelowna, like you mentioned, it's uh, actually the lowest that it is in a interior region. And what we're seeing is that students cannot find housing, both accessible issues and affordable issues. They're placing themselves in precarious, unsafe living situations. We see students at SFU asking on Reddit, how they can, where they can park their car so they can live in it through the term. Uh, you have students uh, delaying their education by a month, staying home, hoping that October will be different, they'll be able to find something. You have students sleeping in illegal suites uh, in precarious situations that could change and they're not covered by code. And if they're choosing to live without housing, whether that's happening or not, they're putting themselves in situations because there just is no housing. Uh, available to them, and it does result in either delaying their education, making the choice to stay home or go elsewhere, or delaying their education, because obviously when you're sleeping in your car or living in a situation like that, it has an impact on you as a person, and therefore your education as well. That is absolutely awful when I hear of that, uh, not only for the case of uh, living in things like your car, but you mentioned safety. Um, and getting yourself into situations you simply don't want to be in as a student where it is unsafe accommodation and making unwise choices. What is uh, the BC Federation of Students doing about that, if anything, at this point? 
Of course, so a large piece of this uh, is obviously the advocacy uh, with the government, and we have coalition partners at BC Rent Bank uh, who are able to be the experts on housing to which students are not and, and really lead that advocacy when it comes to the government. But we also have our student unions. Uh, we have 15 member locals across the province, and we are trying to educate students with resources before they get here or when they are on campus of what is reasonable, legal, and what they should be expected to. Should they get themselves in precarious situations, we have full-time staff at those locals who are able to support them, as well as on retainer uh, tenancy lawyers. That's how big the problem is and common for students. Is this just a Vancouver problem or more of a Vancouver problem? I mentioned uh, cities like uh, Kamloops and uh, Kelowna. Uh, What are you hearing from uh, those around the province, uh, some of your associated federations of students? Of course. So we see students in Kamloops, obviously, the enrollment number is higher than the amount of spaces there are for people to live. And you see that same problem in Kelowna as well. Institutions are inviting students into our community on the benefit of post-secondary, but we as a community are failing them. So with the upcoming municipal election, October 15th, you will see students having their lived experiences at the forefront of their minds when they go to the polls. Our municipal governments do have a responsibility through their growth strategies, housing action plans, and zoning to address affordable housing. And so what we're wanting to see from our candidates is points on that and how they're going to address it, uh, not circumvent it, but actually address the experience because students do contribute to these communities, right? And so we do, as a municipal government, have a responsibility where it is our stakeholders. And perhaps this is the angle that is being ignored when it comes to some of the campaigning by civic politicians in this campaign ahead of the municipal elections on October 15th. Yes, we have been talking about uh, the housing market, but what about the housing market, especially as it pertains to affordable rent for off-campus students who may be looking for a place to live as they want to further their education in cities like Vancouver and Kelowna and Kamloops, Victoria, the rest of the province? Um, Why are they not talking about this? Uh, Well, to address some of that and what we're going to uh, see done about it is Tashia Kutineo with the BC Federation of Students. Uh, Tashia, uh, thanks so much uh, for picking up on this story. And uh, when it comes to rent and taking action uh, on behalf of uh, students, how do you align that with uh, the municipal campaigns? Are you talking to any of the candidates? Yes, so we're trying to set up where applicable and help our student unions set up all candidate meetings where candidates are able to come to campuses and be able to speak on the issues, as well as we've developed out a kind of get out the vote campaign uh, to engage youth in the municipal elections and understand what falls within the municipal government that impacts students who attend post-secondary. So, yeah, what does fall within the municipal government? Where is there a difference between what, uh, say, a mayor and council members can do Uh, with a uh, civic vote, well, with a council vote after they're elected, and what is provincial? Yeah, so we have two moving parts here that really pertain to students for the municipal government, and that is transportation as well as housing. Uh, We understand uh, that a lot of policy that comes around housing is shaped by the provincial government, and we are pushing, you know, for rent freeze, uh, especially when a there is a thing thinking about, you know, 8% of students and people will lose their housing within the next years with all the increases in um, 
in that regard. However, the municipal government union put out a report saying that there is enough housing being built uh, to match the amount of population growth. And we know that not to be true because we know that students are are really not being accounted for in those kinds of reports. Uh, Around 50 percent of students usually live off campus uh, due to lack of on-campus housing. And some, you know, post-secondary institutions were never built to have on-campus housing. Uh, So it just shows for us that municipal governments are not necessarily taking into account that students who come to their communities are integral parts of those communities. I take it on-campus housing is uh, mostly full, and that's the reason why so many students don't even look at that as an option. Or is it because it would be too expensive to begin with? What is the deal there? I think there is, at most post-secondary institutions, a very long wait list when it comes to on-campus housing, and they do try to prioritize first-year students as well as Indigenous and other IBPOC members of the community. And so those are those two things that come into regard. But ultimately, these institutions are growing at rapid rates that they uh, were not necessarily set up to house. So when students or potential students turn to the rental market, you mentioned transportation uh, being one of the key things. I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, those ones that are close to things like SkyTrain around uh, the Vancouver area are going to be a lot more expensive. Yes, you are going to see that for students, uh, especially when there is such a demand that prices will go up. And a lot of people don't actually want to rent to students uh, because they have an understanding that students uh, come and leave in a time frame and they want long-term tenants or they want people who have twice the amount of income, uh, which students do not fit in that category. And these are unreasonable things that landlords cannot necessarily legally write on a paper, but definitely come into their minds when considering uh, applications. You mentioned this a little bit, but I want to expand on it. When it comes to housing, uh, there have been uh, many, many announcements that, uh, yes, we have uh, increased the amount of affordable housing. It is uh, something we have uh, are going to do even more of. But uh, does that, do those announcements kind of... Um, ring empty for you. Uh, What's going on with that? I think there's so many moving parts here that are inherently intersected. You know, student housing is first and foremost an affordability issue because access to education is not just about the cost of attending, but rather the cost associated with it and housing being in that. So when we have inadequately funded public post-secondary institutions that are having to increase their tuition to fill budget gaps, left by a, a provincial operational grants, then we see that impacting students. So not only do they have huge cost of tuition, now they need to move to an urban center to attend a post-secondary that has a program for them uh, that does not have not housing. So it's two parts moving here. We have public post-secondary that's underfunded and lack of affordable housing. And I think they kind of play off of one another for students and their experience. We've seen over the years that many of the programs that used to only be available at some of the bigger universities like SFU or UBC or UVic in Victoria um, have now spread and are available in areas like Prince George or Kamloops or Kelowna. Uh, Is that something that could help uh, an expansion uh, to some of those programs? You know, what I will say on that point is we're seeing a lot of that competitive nature from public post-secondary institutions due to, again, lack of government funding and operational grants. And so, again, we do need to think about not just getting students in the door to these programs, but our responsibility to them when they are in our communities. Yes. Tashia, where do we go from here? 
for uh, the BC Federation of Students Advocating or uh, for um, taking the fight to the next level to actually translating it into rental housing that is affordable in our province? For us as the BC Federation of Students, we push for a rent freeze, but we also have the most impact when we're able to work with coalition partners that can create systems that not just benefit students, but also everyone. Uh, our biggest partner is BC Rent Bank. Uh, because they are the experts on housing to which students cannot be, they are able to use our voices and experiences uh, to ensure that there is a system that is sustainable and secure in the long term. And so that's what we are putting our efforts towards, as well as educating students on what they can reasonably expect in their housing situation. From the political side, are you getting any allies? Are you getting uh, people that have jumped on the uh, bandwagon with you uh, in Vancouver or elsewhere? You know, that's the beautiful thing about these uh, coalition partners is that we're able to connect with people outside of the post-secondary sector who are also impacted by this issue. So, yes, we are. And what is it that they're telling you? Um, is it uh, is there hope? You know, we try to be as hopeful as we can and in means of things that we as a federation have the ability to push for change. There is a post-secondary funding review happening and we are continuously advocating for more funding towards public post-secondary institutions, not just a revaluation of the current funding model. So that's our piece of the pie and we're pushing as hard as we can. Next steps and uh, things that uh, you expect to be doing in the next year uh, to make this, uh, well, to solve this as an issue. To solve this, you know, it's a long-term uh, issue. Uh, of course, it's very systemic, but we'll continue to push for a uh, wage that actually speaks to what uh, people should re- uh, be able to expect in this economy, as well as pushing, again, for those operational grants to be increased uh, and having a freeze on tuition. Because I think for students right now, not only is the cost of living so high, the cost of their educations is so high, and there's no need for that. And so we do think there should be a freeze on tuition with progressive uh, increases slowly as that reduces. Uh, and, you know, we're in talks with the government always pushing for these things. So we'll continue to do that. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, one of those ones that is the solution. I mean, perhaps you can't really fix uh, the rental or housing market, but uh, a budget is a budget when it comes to students and students work with budgets uh, and they're advised to do so. So is there other ways outside of uh, rental housing? You mentioned uh, tuition freezes. Are there other things that can kind of be a lowering of the cost that you can advocate for? Of course. Federally, we're advocating uh, for knocking out interest. So in BC, we actually have no interest on provincial student uh, assistance, but the federal interest still exists. Uh, It's frozen until 2013, but that was just a COVID measure. And, you know, the federal government did promise to eliminate that to create a better Canada for everybody. So that's another piece that we're advocating on because that would really help students, you know, um, after their education. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I try to be as optimistic as we can. Well, thank you very much for spending some time and outlining the challenge that's ahead and some of the work that you're going to be doing to advocate for this as uh, students are being affected by BC's housing market and the rental for off-campus accommodation. Very high, not only in Vancouver, but around the province. Tashia Kutnail, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, it's time to check in on an election race in the B.C. interior. It's a race for mayor that's getting a great deal of attention, mainly because an ass is running for mayor. Where? Grand Forks. 
Well, community contributor Eric Chapman has been checking in on this for us. The world has seen many great leaders. Sometimes those great leaders come from the most unexpected places. A person at a young age can be thrust into duty only to cast away their entire life just to do what's right. We've seen examples of this in the past. Hank in 2015, a pig that was just eating slop one day and the next has 7,300 write-in votes to be a Virginia state senator. Earl Grey ran for mayor in Halifax in 2012 and now has their eyes set on the seat of the head honcho. That's right, Earl Grey wants to run for prime minister. There's a local donkey that has decided they want to make change. Lobo is running for mayor in Grand Forks, B.C. Fun fact, Grand Forks is just east of the community of Almond Gardens, B.C. in the Similkameen Division Yale Land District of British Columbia. Lobo the donkey has a caretaker that is running his campaign, Lorraine O'Connor. So I gave her a call to chat politics and donkeys, which really do go hand in hand. Hi-oh! Lobo is a small standard donkey. He's 13 years old. He's only 40 inches tall, but that doesn't stop him from wanting to do big things. <laughs> oh, 40 inches tall. I didn't read that in the article. Oh, that makes this more, even more adorable. How did you... Uh... <laughs> How did you uh, come to, to have Lobo in your life? I have a farm, and I've got an assortment of farm animals. And there was an ad in one of the feed stores on the bulletin board, and my husband and I went and looked at this little donkey, and it was love at first sight. Oh, I love that. When did Lobo decide to get into politics? You know, it was never really on his agenda or his bucket list, but it just it just happened, and it's maybe in the stars because somebody had mentioned something about any ass could run and it's not directed at anybody. And I thought, Hey, I have an ass right out here. So here we are. (laughs) And this is the town of Grand Forks, right? Tell me a little bit about Grand Forks. Grand Forks is a beautiful valley running east to west, beautiful farmland, uh, around 4,000 people in it. Half of those are seniors, actually. And there's a lot of history here, a lot of uh, fourth-time generation people here. We've got two rivers, uh, the Granby and the Kettle, and they meet right in Grand Forks and join. It, it is a beautiful place. Is it is it maybe a mining history that, that's around that area with all the rivers? You know, it, there is mining, and there's logging, and there's ranching. There's uh, uh, quite a pioneer history here. What are some of the hot topics in Grand Forks that Lobo will be addressing during his uh, mayoral campaign? Lobo has a site that a friend of mine started up, and people have been putting their concerns on there, asking Lobo, you know, what about this, what about that, Uh, bringing attention to things we never even knew about. Um, And so, of course, we all know about housing. Well, in 2018, there was a huge flood. It displaced a lot of people. They're still waiting for housing. Uh, we need more housing for people who want to come here and work. They want to work in the hospital or other industries. It, you know, we have two parks. We have City Park, and then the Rotary built a beautiful water park for the kids to play in. And because of the floods, and now they're redoing the dikes downtown, those parks aren't usable. So... The younger generation is looking for stuff for them to do. They need some open air spaces 
where they can play and safely play and where their parents and grandparents can come along and sit on benches and watch them play. Yeah, you know, all uh, all uh, um, jacking around aside, um, you know, th- that's interesting you bring up the, the issues that come from this and how, it, you know, it's kind of inspired people to maybe speak up that haven't before. It has inspired people, and that's what I'm really enjoying. You know, it was done on a lark, and it's brought people together. It's brought, brought people together to talk about the election, who's running, the concerns that have never been addressed, never even looked at. It's got people talking about when is the elections, and they, you know, it's really been a, a good thing. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure you're probably aware, Lorraine. We in Vancouver, you know, the Lower Mainland, we have elections coming up too. So that's also why I wanted to bring this up. You know, just to, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is about an election. Whatever interests you, you should find it and and you should look into it and you should bring up those topics that it, that you mentioned there, Lorraine, and that Lobor is, is fighting for here because because in the end, it's 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 a good message to get out and get heard. It is, and it takes people power. Don't sit back and wait for somebody to do it for you. Get out there and do it. There's lots to do. Do it. If you've got the ability, if you've got the desire, do it. If you want to see what Lobo is up to, Lobo for Mayor 2020 on Facebook. In fact, Lobo has inspired me to never get into politics. Thanks, Lobo, and good luck. Hey, And no, you can't say goodbye to summer just yet. In fact, uh, we've got even more of that uh, hot air around. (laughs) I love saying that. Uh, The hot air around uh, coming up uh, for the afternoon and again tomorrow and possibly on Sunday from what I hear. Well, Global BC's Chief Meteorologist Mark Madriga is with me right now. Mark, it's so great to uh, have you with us again, Um, especially as we have a little bit of a reprieve, I guess, on summer, right? Well, uh, yeah, for sure, Bruce. Great to be with you this uh, this morning. And you know, the uh, the summer that never ends. Almost, you know, it uh, it started the second week of July, and uh, we've had mostly dry weather and lots of uh, uh, periods of heat to, for many many weeks. Uh, we're in a drought, really, and uh, and no rain through at least Monday. There's a chance we will get some rain on Tuesday, but yeah, what you opened with is uh, certainly what I have for you, and that is uh, we'll start with the heat. The high pressure ridge, the upper ridge, is building nice. Uh, into BC today, and uh, we're going to be several degrees warmer today versus yesterday. Tomorrow's going to probably be the hottest as we get close to 30 in a lot of areas, 30 degrees tomorrow afternoon, and then maybe down a few degrees on Sunday, but still uh, way up there into the mid to upper 20s. So, uh, yeah, temperature-wise, well, I know there'll be a few complaints about the heat, as we always have, but the overnight temperatures are at least a little lower. The longer nights, of course, Bruce, we've been dropping down to 10 or 11. I think we'll probably bottom at 13 or so the next couple of nights. So it's it's the afternoons that are somewhat uncomfortable for a number of people. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's probably a last gasp of heat for this summer. Absolutely. A chance for as many of us who enjoy that last gasp of heat to get out there and really have some fun. Uh, Mark, yeah. you know, I always uh, take a look at the Fraser Valley and how it compares to uh, places like the Okanagan or the rest of the interior. Uh, Are we going to see a difference in temperature now that it's getting closer to fall? Well, 
for this next couple of days, it's uh, it's quite interesting. At uh, at this time of year, and also we we see this in the uh, in the spring, uh, we get to higher barometric pressure form over the BC interior, and it's for a number of reasons. Uh, but basically, that's what's happening now. So. Speaking of the Okanagan, certainly well into the mid-20s the next few afternoons, but with the higher pressure there that's developed overnight last night and through today, we're getting an on, sorry, an offshore flow, that is the flow of air in the lower to mid-levels, pushing from interior to coast. So that's actually compressing, uh, the air compresses as it uh, comes down in elevation, and we have higher temperatures here in the lower mainland versus the Okanagan for the next couple of days. It's kind of a turnaround from what we normally have, but... Uh, you know, we're going to be in the upper 20s today, close to 30 tomorrow, and uh, the Okanagan dropping a little bit uh, from those values into the mid-20s, but at least it'll be warm. So, yeah, it's it's kind of an odd situation, that uh, that stiff northeast outflow that's uh, really going to warm us up here in the south coast, except, Bruce, for areas right near the water where we have quite a sea breeze going on today. It's only going to be about 2021 at the airport where it'll be the upper 20s away from the water today. And when you talk about that outflow, uh, I guess some areas of the Fraser Valley may end up seeing a little bit of that forest fire smoke. Uh, I know Manning Park had uh, that uh, fire around the East Gate, but uh, yeah. there are other fires in the uh, province too. What uh, what can we expect for maybe this afternoon and right through the weekend? Well, uh, first of all, that fire that broke out last night just a few kilometers west of Hope that... Uh, Viewers and listeners were sending in pictures, and it's on social media, of uh, the flames last night. A uh, fair bit of smoke with that fire, and I can see that on my satellite imagery. Uh, it's, it's some smoke sliding right in from the northeast, so the fire, let's say, just near Hope. That uh, area of smoke sliding in through Chilliwack, I think some in Abbotsford. So it's not really thick, but um, you know, once you get to Abbotsford and into Metro Vancouver, it's a lot thinner. But we're getting a little from that fire right now. But elsewhere... You you bet. That Manning Park fire, just south of Manning Park, I can see the smoke from that pushing in from that area toward uh, Bellingham, so it's sliding in from the east and northeast. That's the thickest area of smoke I'm seeing on my satellite imagery, and that's south of the 49th parallel, south of the border. It'll probably stay there as that uh, punch of air from the northeast keeps it south of the border. But, yeah, the last uh, element here is the, uh, the other fires in the B.C. interior, several near Lillooet and Lytton. I'm not seeing really thick smoke on any of the webcams or on my satellite imagery from those fires, but the smoke from those fires in the interior has nowhere to go over the next 24 to 36 hours, but right in here to the south coast as we get that flow from the northeast. So, yeah, the visibility and uh, the air quality will will, uh, suffer somewhat uh, later today through tomorrow, Bruce, but uh, how much they suffer is still a bit of a question mark. Okay, Mark, before we let you go, uh, as far as you can see, even beyond this, uh, are we going to get a chance to wear our new fall clothes anytime soon? Uh, you know, I haven't looked too far down the road, but I can uh, I click through a few charts while we speak here. And, you know, I, there's a chance of some showers in here now for Monday night, uh, but uh, really a few degrees cooler as we go into next week, but still likely above average. And I'm kind of scanning, uh, you know, the third week of, I don't like to go too far down the road with precision because it, it never seems to work out very well. But I'm into the third week on my charts here. And certainly, yeah, we're, we're going to eventually, uh, by uh, the third week of September, I think we'll be back in the storm track so i 
wouldn't doubt if we'd have uh, several episodes of some rain at least and uh, certainly cooler air eventually. So, you know, those that like the last (laughs) gasp of summer, soak it up this weekend, Bruce. And Mark, you know, uh, summer doesn't owe us anything this year, I think. Can't complain. (laughs) You're right. It's been quite a stretch. Well, the wait is almost over. The 41st Vancouver International Film Festival starts on September 29th and goes right through until October the 9th. This year, over 130 films, 100 shorts, talks, and some special events all going to be taking part in the film festival. Explore Vancouver International Film Festival 2022 is the big push. And joining us right now to talk about uh, what we can expect this year that might be different than other years is Kyle Fosner. He's the executive director of the Vancouver International Film Festival. Kyle, thanks so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you for having me. What can we expect that's uh, going to be a different flavor this year? Well, you know, it's been a few years since we were back in full force. So it might be a familiar for some, but it might be a new experience for others getting back into the full-fledged cinema experience. Um, It's an incredibly strong film program this year. So, you know, before 2020, our film program lasted 16 days and it covered over 200 features. Uh, And so there was a lot to choose from, but sometimes you didn't know what to watch. Uh, This year at 135 features, I think we've hit exactly the right target. So everything in our program is solid and there's lots to explore, but you're going to be sure that you're making the right bet. For those that come into the Vancouver International Film Festival or want to take it in, how would you recommend they go about, with so many different offerings, uh, kind of figuring out uh, what to prioritize? How do you do that? Well, it depends on who you are. Um, and, you know, if you've been to the, the festival before, I might give you one piece of advice. If it's your first time, you know, the first thing I always say to people is start with something that you're that you may have heard of. Start with one of our special presentations or our showcase films. These are the most broad appeal. Um, there's a few comedies in there. There's films from around the world. There's films like Women Talking by um, noted uh, director and actress uh, Sarah Pauly. Um, we have the, the Palm Door winner from Cannes this year, uh, Triangle of Sadness by Ruben Oslin. So there's lots of um, familiar names, bigger name actors there, and that will open the door for you. And then once you do that, um, there's lots to explore. If you want to do, uh, you know, environmental or social justice documentaries, we have lots to choose from. If you want to do uh, films that focus on Indigenous issues, we have lots of great films by Indigenous creators this year. Um, if you're interested in the best up-and-coming Canadian uh, filmmakers uh, and Indigenous filmmakers, the Northern Light series is where to look. So I would say if you're going to see three things, step one, Go with something you know you're going to love. Go with a special presentation. Step two, try something new. Explore something. Try a film from our portrait series, which is about art and design. Um, And then step three, maybe try out something uh, totally different. Uh, Try out a short film. Uh, We have great Canadian and international short films this year. So something's going to surprise you, I guarantee it. How does a film make it to VIF? Uh, How do they get selected or uh, approved? That's a great question. Um, well, we have a, an enormous um, programming team, uh, lots of uh, full-time contract and then uh, 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 programmers around the world making recommendations for us. We also have an enormous submissions process with every single submission to the festival uh, made by a filmmaker gets viewed, um, often by more than one person. 
uh, and we create this master list and we start working our way down towards the, the strongest or most compelling components of it. We look at other components as well in, in terms of gender barrier, uh, gender um, equity, and then also um, diversity within the programming components, making sure we're hitting all of the different regions of the world. So quite a complex process uh, involving, you know, anywhere from 10 to, to 50 people. We know that there are film festivals in different areas, some famous ones around the world, but Vancouver must have a different sort of feel to it. Uh, what do the people that are behind the films that end up uh, in Vancouver, what do they go for that's different than, say, uh, some of the others uh, internationally? Yeah, I think that's a question we get asked a lot. And so the first thing I say is that we're not really concerned with celebrity. That's not what we're in it for. We're in it for the filmmakers themselves. We're in it for creators, writers, directors, editors, people who dedicate their lives towards making great work. So, you know, you're not necessarily going to have the Ryan Gosling's of the world walk through the door, but instead what you're going to have is an intimate conversation with a filmmaker uh, who is a legend in their own rights in different parts of the world uh, who are going to really open your eyes to new ideas, to new perspectives, and then be there in person to discuss the work with you. So it's a really different approach uh, than some of the larger festivals. It's much more about connecting our audiences to creators directly. Kyle Fosner is the executive director of the Vancouver International Film Festival. Kyle, I'm going to ask you a question to go back in your mind for a little bit and tell me about a film that you saw at any film festival that really stood out and still is a memory for you. Oh, there's a fair amount there. Um, Yeah, you know what? I'll tell you from my first festival. I had recently moved to Vancouver from Montreal, and uh, and it was a... uh, a venue manager for the festival at the time. <clears throat> and I took a gamble on seeing a film at the Center for Performing Arts, which is an 1,800-person room. And the film was called Wild Tales. And it's a, it was a, it was an Argentinian film that had five or six different segments in it, different stories all within that same package. And it is a wild film. It's, it, the, the, the title is real. Uh, and it takes you through these insane and like gregarious and sometimes violent, sometimes explosive, but sometimes hilarious moments. And I had never watched a film in a room that large with that many of my fellow film lovers. And the first moment of surprise, everyone drew in a collective breath. The first moment of humor, there was this insane ripple of laughter across the entire room. And it's a 50-foot screen. Uh, so it's, the sound is huge, the image is huge, and then everyone experiencing it together is a memory that, that has stuck with me these eight years later. Many of us are moviegoers, not really filmgoers, but uh, there is a difference between a commercial movie, I would imagine, mainstream movie, and uh, that goes for a commercial big box success and a really good film. What would you tell people that have never gone to a film festival to see a film uh, to expect? How can they open their eyes? Well, you know, I think there's a few different things. One is that I think people assume that a, that a film from a film festival is going to be uh, heavy-handed, intellectual, inaccessible in a way that uh, in in a way that doesn't mean that it's entertaining. And I would say that that's not true. So you know, if you want to watch a, a film at Cineplex and enjoy yourself, then you can also come to the film festival and find films that that you which will thrill you, which will excite you. It's just coming from a different perspective. And so the thing that is really worth noting is that, um, you know, a lot of the mainstream films we see these days, they have really clear cut formulas to how they do them. There's, 
you know, obviously wonderful special effects and process behind it. And there's lots of great work that goes into it, but there's often familiar narratives, familiar themes, familiar outcomes. Uh, but what you'll find in, a, in an international film festival is because it draws from people from around the world and a true 360-degree set of perspectives, you're going to find that things take a course you don't expect. And that experience is really relieving to people who watch a lot of you know, mainstream North American films. So I think people will be really, really pleasantly surprised. To green light a mainstream big box office uh, film is quite a process, and it's uh, commercial. Um, but in green lighting a small film, it's a whole different process, isn't it? It is, yeah. And so you'll see that a lot on the on the sort of national scale that we have the, the Northern Lights series, which focuses on first or second uh, run, first or second features from filmmakers. Um, also, documentaries, similar process. But I think it's also worth noting that a lot of the films we we hold uh, in our program from around the world are, in fact, the largest films from those regions. So it's not just that it's it doesn't have the, the financial might of Hollywood. But when we get a top tier film, say from from Hong Kong's notorious and and extremely uh, treasured filmmaking industry, it's a, it's a, it is an, in fact a mainstream film for that region, and so it has all of the components and financial backing. But yes. For the for greenlighting smaller productions, it's a, it's a lot more complex. But at the same time, there's a lot less interference on in the outcome. So you might have uh, less budget to work with, but you also don't have the studios imposing their will on editing decisions or uh, changes to the outcome of the film itself. And uh, and so you know, oftentimes it's a more honest representation of what the filmmaker's vision is. Kyle, you've uh, piqued my interest again this year. I have been in past years, but. Uh... Uh, I definitely want to take this in. A lot of others will want to take this in. How difficult is it to get tickets? What's the process? It's extremely easy to get tickets. In fact, we've launched a whole new website this year and a new ticketing platform this year to make it even easier. So it's vif.org, V-I-F-F dot O-R-G. You can find everything up for sale right now. Uh, and uh, everything is affordably priced. Uh, there's membership programs. We've got everything to make it easy for people to come. Well, Kyle Fosner, Executive Director of the Vancouver International Film Festival. Look forward to September 29th when it gets underway. And uh, again, those that want more information can go to vif.org, V-I-F-F dot org for that. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thank you.